Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you. Another evening, another special topic evening, where we will continue to engage your questions. As I have noted in the past, this really is an evening that is tailored to your questions. And as it caters to your questions, it attempts to cater to your heart. The kinds of questions that are provoked from maybe a conversation you had with someone or maybe something that you read. Either way, I am trying my best to journey with you in where you are at. Essentially, this program is only going to be as good as you ask me the questions that are on your heart. Now, all that being said, I have also discovered that from time to time, your questions are a reflection, if you will, of the season we are in, or maybe even the, the feast day we might be celebrating. So with that, it really came to no surprise to read of your latest question, and I should say questions, right? Because I have received a number of questions, which in many ways boils down to one question, what is the deeper meaning of Christmas Day? And as one of you put it, what is the deepest meaning of Christmas Day? When you ask me about just not what is the deeper meaning of Christmas, but really the deepest meaning of Christmas, I go to poverty. I really simply don't have any other place to go than poverty. Poverty is the foundation when you, when you really get to the heart of it. I mean, this is probably best illustrated in the fact that poverty is really the golden thread that binds all the saints together. They were at their finest when they were allowing God to fill up the poverty in their hearts. And really at once, that is what allowed them to minister to the poverty in others. We could say as action proceeds from being, the saints, my friends, teach us that they are at their best serving the poor when their being is first poor in spirit. So at that the deeper meaning of Christmas, or maybe we should say the deepest meaning of Christmas. And if we're going to get at this as we ought, we really do need to turn our attention to the gospel of Luke. Luke commences his account on the birth of Jesus with these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. Now, on one level, when you look at this narrative from the Gospel of Luke, certainly we could say that Luke is providing the reader with the historical circumstances, if you will, bringing Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. But on another level, their mere mentioning of Caesar Augustus in the infancy narrative of Christ is really charged with deeper meaning and deeper significance. Dare I say, the deepest meaning and the deepest significance of what encircles Christmas Day. What do I mean? Well, consider that Caesar Augustus was most famous for establishing peace across the Roman Empire, what do we call this, but the Pax Romana, right? 
and that he was hailed by many of his subjects as savior of the world. And even, of course, for those of you who are historians, know God, right? Now, these facts would have been known to the first century reader of the Bible. Please, my friends, understand the importance of when reading the sacred text, we get into the mind of the author, that we spend time with who the author might have been writing to, so as to better appreciate what that original text was all about. Uh, Certainly, this is a part of any good interpretation of sacred scripture. So, as we say these kinds of facts would have been known to the first century reader of the Bible, we can then consequently say (laughs) each first century reader of Luke's text would have been made to kind of compare and contrast the saving message of Caesar Augustus to the saving message of Jesus Christ, the real savior of the world and bringer of peace, huh? Now, what's really interesting here is that you can really establish a more detailed comparison of Caesar Augustus and Jesus Christ and uncover something that brings us to the deeper, or dare I say, deepest place of Christmas Day. In Caesar Augustus, we have a man who was welcomed as a what? King. In Jesus Christ, you have the God-man who was rejected as a what? King. In Caesar Augustus, you have, well, what one could say, the best housed person in the world. In Jesus Christ, you have the God-man who couldn't even find a home born in a stable cave. In Caesar Augustus, you have a man who was adorned with the fragrance of a king. In Jesus Christ, you have the God-man who was born in the dirt of a stable, who would certainly eventually receive the fragrances due to him. In Caesar Augustus, you have what one could say probably the best fed person in the world. In Jesus Christ, you have the God-man who becomes what? I can hear some of you say it out there, food for the world in the Eucharist. What does Jesus say in John chapter 6? I am the bread of life, right? Not I am like bread, but I am the bread of life. I am the drink, Uh, not like drink, but I am the drink. So he becomes food for the world. My dear friends, with Caesar Augustus, And Jesus Christ, you have this kind of, I think what we could really say, intended uh, comparison and contrast that is not only a bullet point exposition of the infancy narrative as it relates to Caesar and Christ, but a reminder of God's own poverty. Popular 20th century radio and television personality who was a favorite of mine, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, really brings insight into our reflection here, what poverty looks like. He says, There in a place of lonely abandonment in a cold whisperer cave, there under the floor of the world, I love that line, under the floor of the world, in the filthiest place in the world, purity was born. Purity was born. He goes on, There was no room in the inn, but there was room in the stable. A stable would be the last place in the world where one would have looked for him because divinity 
is where one least expects to find it. Another great line, divinity is where one least expects to find it. I mean, really, my friends, who, in all honesty, would have been expecting the cross? The cross. Very few. This, again, is an illustration of the paradox of our faith. What does it mean, by the way, to say paradox? What does that word literally mean? Well, it is a word that when you break it down, best translates as contrary to expectation. We just have this kind of built-in expectation into things, do we not? We just make assumptions without even realizing that we're making an assumption until that assumption doesn't come true. And I'm not talking about, you know, the assumption that dinner will be ready for you when you get home uh, this evening. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something much bigger, not that dinner this evening is not important. (laughs) So paradox, a very important uh, point to just not the deeper and or deepest meaning of Christmas Day. Certainly it applies to that, and this is why I'm talking about, but also even more generally about our Christian and Catholic faith. There are just so many things in our faith that when you find them, you say, hmm, that's interesting. I wasn't expecting that, right? Have you ever said that about finding Christ in something or someone you just didn't expect it, right? So, my dear friends, certainly the poverty found in the manger is a great paradox, and as such, a great mystery. But a mystery we are intended to meditate upon and really apply to our own lives. And this is why this kind of reflection this evening is so important for us today. Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus is a welcomed invitation to reflect into the poverty of God and the call we have to bear witness to material poverty, being without goods, and spiritual poverty, humbling God and at the same time reliant upon God for sustenance and strength. If we are going to be honest with ourselves, at one time or another, we have all struggled with wanting more than we have, watching more than we need, sleeping more than we ought, and certainly eating more than we should. We all want to watch more, sleep more, eat more, so on and so forth. Our human appetites, at one time or another, probably have gotten the best of us. And so it is, we turn our attention to the wisdom of St. Paul, who writes, though he was rich, Jesus Christ became poor for your sake. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ was rich in his divinity, but in a manner of speaking, poor in his humanity. Because he desires that we be enriched by his divinity, that is grace in our humanity. And here could we not apply that great spiritual maximum of less is more. On the material level, the less we are bound to the more we will be disposed to. And even more specifically, the less we are bound to material goods, the more we will be disposed to divine goods, His grace, huh? His grace. In other words, the more stuff we buy, the more stuff we have to be accountable for. And the less stuff we buy, the less stuff 
we have to be accountable for. You've heard me, I think, quote a former pastor of ours here in Chico over at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church, who once said that I have never seen a U-Haul truck following a hearse. (laughs) I'll never forget that. I have never seen a U-Haul truck following a hearse. Now, why would he say that? Well, his point, my friends, really was driving home the very thing we are talking about now. Less is more. So if we're going to enter into this, then what do we need to do? Enter into that spirit of simplicity, which is certainly akin to the humble-hearted, that, that being poor in spirit that Matthew talks about, that Jesus talked about in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It is no wonder that in the devotional prayer of the rosary, in its third joyful mystery, the nativity, we pray for the fruit of Christian poverty to come down into our souls. Isn't that interesting? I think our intention when we pray that third joyful mystery really gets it right, that the fruit of Christian poverty come down into our souls, that the more we meditate upon what lies at the heart of the manger, consequently what lies at the heart of Christmas Day, is in the end a meditation and a reflection on poverty, poverty, which is certainly, again, about becoming food for the world. By the way, my friends, he was born where and in what? He was born in Bethlehem in a manger. What does the word Bethlehem mean? If you were to translate Bethlehem from the Hebrew, it literally translates as house of bread. House of bread. And if you were to translate a manger, uh, the Latin there is mandire, that word literally translates as to chew or gnaw. To chew or gnaw. So here you have the infant king who has become food for the world, born in this place that is called house of bread and in a cave that translates to chew or gnaw. <laughs> Think about that. Our God is a God of infinite, infinite sovereign providence. There isn't any detail that he misses. And I think in moments like these, he wants us to be present to the detail. He wants us to appreciate the finer things in Revelation, how we might gain insight into something like what we are talking about now. All right, as I speak to this, we ought to be then aware of what? That to live with less is more, that mindset, is to then have what more of? But time, time. The greatest gift that we can give is the gift of time. You know, I remember asking the question to my junior high students. I taught in junior high. Many of you know that. And during this time, I would ask my students the question, what is the one thing that you treasure most? And maybe the one thing that would be the most difficult for you to give away. And every student talked about something they possessed in material form. And I get it. And I was fully appreciating the many things that these junior high students were talking about, the many things that were close to them, that after talking about the importance of what it means to give, yeah, they were probably too attached to it. And in the end, it would be good to give it to someone who might be more in need. Okay, great. But no one spoke to time until, until I asked that same question, would you believe, to 
a kindergarten class. On one particular Advent day, we did a class switch. It was the end of the semester, kind of last day, and we did a class switch. And I was just kind of curious to pick the minds of five and six-year-olds, right? And I said, what is going to be the most difficult thing for you to give up? if you were to give up one thing, right? And many of them talked about their toys, and there's this little girl off in the corner who said, Mr. Holcraft, the one thing that would probably be the most difficult thing is the time I have to play. There it was. There it was. She said it. The time I have, right? Now, did she really know what she was saying? I, I, I don't know. I, I cannot say... Otherwise, I cannot say that she didn't know, right? Because what she spoke to was something that she experienced in a very concrete way. And she really was tapping into a much deeper spiritual truth. That, as we talk about deep, deeper, and deepest, really gets to the deepest truth. Because I do think, I do believe that that gift, the gift of time, is the one thing that is so hard for us to give, the one thing that we are so attached to. Now, certainly in the case of this little girl who spoke to time and play, I am not demeaning in any way, shape, or form the importance of play. I have four kids. My wife and I cannot talk enough about the importance of our kids playing outside and playing with their friends and so on and so forth. So Lord knows I am not saying that. But she did speak to the importance of time, huh? Incidentally, my friends, when you talk about the concept of time, it is never to be reduced to how we think about it chronologically. You know, chronology is a word that means simply what but the study of time, chronos, linear time. Hmm? But there is also something called chirology, the study of God's time, grace time, purpose-driven time. Huh? For those of you who are faithful listeners, you know well that as I've spoken to it before, in the creation narrative, when we read of day, we read of what? But purpose-driven time. The Hebrew word for day is yom. This is a word that is not measured by what is chronological, something that is horizontal or linear, but that which is vertical, right? That which goes up, that which belongs to God. Consequently, the Hebrew word yom speaks to purpose-driven time. When God creates, He creates with purpose. When you talk about time within the context of God, it's all about purpose. You see, my friends, that phrase that so many of us use, mea culpa, oh, I'm just killing time. <laughs> you know, have you ever said, I'm just killing time? Brothers and sisters, there might be a Freudian slip there. Because when we are, quote-unquote, killing time, I think we are killing a gift, the gift of time, the gift of time. If you were to really probe into this further, you might find yourself reflecting into that phrase, woe to you, vanity. Woe to you, vanity. For so many of us, we define vanity as a word that speaks to our preoccupation, our preoccupation with what we look like on the outside, right? When in fact, the word vanity comes from the Latin vanus, which best translates as emptiness or a waste of time. When you read the Old Testament, 
and you hear that verse, woe to you, vanity. What is really going on in the mind of the author? But woe to you who has wasted time. Woe to you who was just killing time. You see, my friends, with God, there is no killing time. There's only purpose-driven time. And when you really think about what purpose-driven time is all about, then, then you are well on your way to better understanding a part of that deeper, dare I say again, deepest meaning of Christmas. Because, my dear friends, time is about gift. Gift. God enters into our temporal reality. Kairos enters into Kronos that we might better understand what it means to be a gift to man, a gift to other. God saw it fit that he dwell among us in the flesh, that we might come to know what it means to encounter one another within the context of what? Time. Time. What is that final conversation going to look like? We say there are two things guaranteed in this life, death and taxes, okay? But in reality, it is only death. And so we are made to live with the end in mind. And as we do this, we will see the central importance of embracing this gift of time. Because in that final conversation, what is Jesus going to ask? How much did you love? How much did you encounter one another? How much did you allow my spirit that I gave to you as a gift to invade your soul through and through that you might become a gift to another? Right? When Jesus sends us the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is just not that he wishes to dispense this gift of love inside of us, but that he in turn makes us a gift of love to other. So less is more. Poverty. This is the deepest meaning of Christmas. The flesh dwelt among us. And as it did, and as it has a name, Jesus Christ, right? We imitate him as he calls us to imitate him. And to imitate Jesus Christ is to be caught up in the hour, to be caught up in this reality of living with the end in mind. Once again, brothers and sisters, this is the deepest meaning of Christmas. Some of you might be thinking, gosh, Joe, it's Christmas. <laughs> it's Christmas. Why talk about elements of the cross? Well, brothers and sisters, it is from the crib to the cross that we can only best understand the deeper meaning of the crib and the cross, okay? Because therein lies the salient bookends of the divine revelation of love, a revelation that is rooted in poverty. Now, some of you might be also asking the question, is this not a season of joy? This seems to be dwelling on things that, that are not of joy. No, no, my friends, we're talking about the stuff of grace. And the stuff of grace is imbued with joy. What does the angel Gabriel say to Mary? Rejoice, O highly favored one. And what's a wonder in that great angelic salutation is that greeting is saturated with poverty. So rejoice, O highly favored one. You translate that Greek too, it's hail full of grace. 
the Greek word for grace is the same word for joy. Uh, the root there is charis, charis. The idea there in principle is where there is grace, there is joy. Where there is joy, there is grace. I think the message of the world has us thinking that, you know, you can't be joyful if you are living in poverty. No, those who are living in poverty, and certainly I'm just not talking about material poverty, that's part of it, but also the spiritual poverty of leaning into God for all things, those folks are the most joyful. Why? Because they are abiding in God's grace. They are abiding in the plentitude of God's joy, His gratuity, His essence, His love, that which just pours out. And to be abiding in that is to be abiding in in bliss, right? Is to have our desires, our longings, our aches met. There's nothing in this world that can definitively satisfy that longing, that ache, that desire. Only God can do that. And as He does it, what does He bring us? Joy. Joy. So let us meditate upon the manger, the nativity, and the deepest meaning of Christmas. And as we do, start looking to encounter poverty on a deeper level. Okay? Go to those who are most in need. Look into the mirror and ask God, how am I in need? How am I impoverished? Help me, Lord, become the person you are calling me to be. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of Christmas Day, this beautiful gift that you have given us that really does encourage us to become the person you are calling us to be. Let us rejoice in one another's company, celebrate life, and as we do so, celebrate you. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.